You know, that's why I, I tell folks, if it's not going the way you thought, just, you know, play it out. You know, play the cards you're dealt, and there's a plan, you know, from you know, divine God that's got you in mind. Right. And we can't even think possibly how that's going to end, like you said, how right. what's, what good's going to come of it and the strengths that it had brought to our family and right. our children. From Fiori Communications, it's How I Got Here, a show of inspiring stories from Tallahassee area leaders, business owners, and neighbors, all the challenges, opportunities, inspirations, the twists and turns of life that led them to where they are today. Everyone has a story worth telling, and I am really grateful that we get to bring a few of them to you. I truly have been changed by my conversations with these amazing people, and I'm confident you will be too. I'm Dave Fiore, and in this episode, I speak with Kelly Hutto. She is the founder and owner of PlayBig, a former All-American track star and a mother of three, who, fueled by poor experiences with the healthcare system, left a career in marketing to pursue a calling in physical therapy. Seeing firsthand the devastating impact of healthcare that lacks resolve and compassion, Kelly is on a mission to ensure children in this region receive better. And based on the response from area parents and the continued growth of her company, she's not alone. We start by discussing how Kelly describes herself today. I am a a wife and a mom uh, of three children. Uh, One is in heaven with Jesus and the angels. So I have an older son and a younger daughter, and that was our middle child. Um, I have taken the long cut through college to get to therapy, which is my passion because of my our middle child. Um, went to Florida State um, uh, as an athlete with uh, track and field. I uh, enjoyed that very much. And I guess Kelly as a person sometimes sometimes gets lost in the you know business of what I do. And so when I boil that down and think about what's really important, it, it's uh, my family and it's, um, it's our country. You know, I'm a very patriotic person. Uh, I'm traveling a lot, <laughs> so I'm like a road warrior right now. So I know you went to high school in Eustis, Yes, Florida. I did. Is that where you grew up? No. In fact, um, we moved there my freshman year. Okay. So I just started, and and we were late moving. So when you move into a new school and you're brand new high schooler, and the house wasn't ready, so we lived in a hotel for a couple of weeks, and my family couldn't transfer down there on time. So everybody's gotten those jitters out, you know, and they're all in their chairs and assigned seating, and I come in, and, like, I really, really am the new person standing out who's late to begin uh, the start of high school. So where did you you grow up? Where did you come from? Um, Born in Louisville, Kentucky, and then moved to um, Baltimore, Maryland. My dad was in sales um, with Magic Chef and Eureka Williams Company, and and then my parents got into um, the Orange Grove business, and bought many orange groves in Central Florida. 
And so, and this was a time where the groves needed updating. There had been some freezing, so they needed to be cleared. Right. It needed to be more irrigation um, and just some, you know, newer, better ideas for growing citrus. They relocated us from Tennessee. So we lived in Tennessee for many, many years and had a farm and kept the farm and leased land out for growing crops and running cattle. Um, and I loved that time of my life, you know, driving the tractor and riding horses and feeding the cattle. And um, I guess that's where my daughter gets her love <laughs> for animals and being on a farm. And, right. Um, and then we moved down to Eustis and we worked in the groves, you know, as kids. We crawled around in the black sand. If you've ever been to Central Florida, right. it's like white on top, but then it's black underneath. And I can remember crawling from tree to tree. Because you couldn't like stand up, get back down, stand up. It's just too much. So you just crawl from tree to tree, putting more irrigation in. Yeah, I, I grew up in central Florida too. And um, they used to hide during the winter, what winter there was, they would hire high school kids to keep the smudge pots burning yep. at night yep. to, to uh, help mitigate the freezing temperatures. Right. Yes. I never did it because it didn't sound very fun. But, <laughs> it was, it's not fun. <laughs> but, uh, it's, so when you say we and us, who is – what would what did your family look like? Who who was us? Mom, dad, siblings. Okay. I have an older sister and a younger brother. And you know, we worked that way. We would we would work together alongside um, the pickers, actually, and a lot of the workers that, you know, worked on the groves and in the groves. And that was interesting. You know, that was a whole different life that we hadn't seen and they'd have their children out there. And, yeah. Um, that was know, another thing. We had, again, similar situation that we had. I had friends who would come down who were my, you know, part of migrant families who would come mm -hmm. down for part of the year every year. I mean, I can't – I can see a lot of high school freshman girls not loving crawling around in an orange grove. That <laughs> you, that didn't bother you? Uh, well, I wasn't really given a choice, but, <laughs> but the way it was presented was – you know, we always made it fun, right. which was good. We were worked for several hours a day, but we'd be so dirty. My mom would hose us off <laughs> outside. You're not coming in this house with anything that like that. Right. So we'd have to go around the backyard, and we had a pool, so it would hose us all off, and then we could jump in the pool and play and hang out and right. come in and get cleaned up. Yeah. So what other than working hard, what kind of kid were you? Were you good in school? Did you... I know we'll get to this in a little bit. I know you're an athlete, so I know at some point that that kicked in. But what did you enjoy doing as a kid? I um, had a sailboat, a Prindle 16-foot catamaran, and I did regattas. And I had a, a boyfriend that had a Hobie, and I would just beat his pants off because the <laughs> Prindle's so much faster. <laughs> um, and we did regattas together. And that was really fun. But I would just go out for hours and sail because we lived on a lake. You know, now I'm like, oh, my gosh, I wonder if my parents <laughs> knew where it was. And sometimes I'd flip it over and, you know, I had a writing system on there where I could get it up by myself. And So did you teach yourself that or did how did you learn how to sail so efficiently? Except for the flipping over. Uh, I, I learned by the school of hard knocks yeah. <laughs> and how to do that. Uh, by making mistakes, I got into sports when I we moved in and I was too late for tryouts for anything because that happened in the summer. So right. no cheerleading or anything like that the first year. But my mom got us in, involved in the band in the um, – so I was a flag girl. I'm right. sure they call it something more 
sophisticated yeah. <laughs> now, but and my sister color guard, color guard, yeah, and my sister did rifles. Yeah. So we got involved and we nice. made friends and we traveled and uh, and then basketball season I played point guard um, for four years. Had you played basketball in middle school? <clears throat> I had in eighth grade. Right. And then I'd go right into track season and cross country. Well, cross country was during football season and then basketball and then track and field. So, and then my second year I was there in the summer and I tried out and then I was the on the cheerleading squad as a as the mascot. So I was a Eustace Panther. <laughs> I was a Panther. And we had a excellent male cheerleader who went on to cheer in college. And he we did lifts and all kinds of really fun things. By my senior year, he had already graduated, and I just couldn't do mascot without him. It wasn't going to be as fun, so I just went out for cheerleading. And so I would cheerlead during football, run cross country, and many meets, my parents would have to drive me home. Mm-hmm. And I'd put on the makeup in the car and all of that and get ready and then go right to the field and then straight into basketball, straight into track and field. That was a lot. I was four sport athlete. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Yeah. yeah. Well, it sounds like you integrated pretty well into the new school after you got over the whole late girl thing. It seems like it, it worked out pretty well. I did. I was on the homecoming court. There were oh, five wow. seniors. You end up at FSU, right? Yes. yes. To, run, to run track or yes. did you, was that... So tell me about that, how you ended up at Florida State. I, um, it was interesting because Florida State was fairly interested in me, as was University of Alabama and University of Georgia. So I was up at University of Tennessee, which was heavily recruiting me because my parents had moved back to Tennessee, um, back to the farm. After I graduated, I happened to be at a track classic. University of Tennessee was doing like consistent times for me, like timing consistent 110s with very little break to see how I did. And the interesting thing was that my mom and dad were in the stands and the FSU team was competing and the FSU coaches all had stopwatches on me. So when I got back from that, they called and offered me a full scholarship. So what was your experience at FSU like? How were, how were those years for you? Amazing. I just, I loved it. I loved everything about Florida State. Um, I enjoyed being an athlete, met lots of other athletes, lots of traveling. That was really fun. Um, Lots of personal records. Yeah, you Um, weren't just an athlete. You were an All-American. That's right. I was a two-time All-American at the 800 meter and part of a a national championship team um, indoor in Syracuse, New York in the Carrier Dome. And then... um, uh, another national championship team um, at in outdoor at Eugene, Oregon. Mm. Um, something else important happened to you when you were at FSU. Uh, you met a certain football player. I did. Yes, so I did. Tell me how you met your husband, Mike. Um, this is this funny story. It really is. It's a great guy meets girl story. Um, so he um, was recruited out of Mariana, Florida at, for – uh, defense, defensive line. They played a defense that required nose guard at that time, and he was recruited as a nose guard. Um, I think they had him put on fifty pounds his freshman year, so he was required <laughs> at the feeding, right. you know, at the at the table. So he occupied more space. Yes, if nothing he, else. Right? He definitely occupied more space. <laughs> um, and I would 
run by Cobalt Terrace. So for those FSU fans that were around before the Burt Reynolds Hall was built for the football players, um, they were in Cobalt Terrace. So I would run through Cobalt Terrace because it's the quickest way uh, to the track, carrying my spikes, you know, and I had my, you know, running gear on and everything. <laughs> Mike would stand there and watch me run by and tell his roommate, he said, see that girl right there? I'm going to marry that girl. <laughs> and he would just say so that. So he would like know when you were coming mm-hmm. and stand there and wait for you to run by. I, I guess. I don't know. It's a tiny bit creepy, but it's romantic <laughs> too, I guess. Right. <laughs> and his roommate, um, finally he's like, man, I'm tired of hearing that. Shut up. You don't even know her name. Um, so he goes, well, I'm going to find it out. I had a class, a um, public speaking class across campus with his roommate who was a big offensive guard. And so that's, I think, what spurred him on to say, hmm, they seem to be spending a lot of time together. And so we would walk across campus. And so we, on the way there, we were doing public speaking on nutrition. So I said, oh, well, by the way, what did you have for breakfast that was nutritious? And he said, "Uh, not a really good day. I was running late, but there were these uh, amazing brownies on the counter. I ate those, and <laughs> and no mention of thanks for bringing them. Right. So I brought them on a plate, you know, not paper, so a real plate. So it has to be returned. See. Right. Smart. Yeah. But guess who returned the plate? <laughs> <laughs> Mike returned the plate. Right. <clears throat> and he said, "I, I no, I didn't throw that note away," which said to. Gerald and Mike in parentheses. He said, I might have put it behind some things on the bulletin board. <laughs> so he never knew. But so Mike was going to make sure he returned the plate. And nice. That's how we got started dating. So did it get serious quickly or did you yes. just kind of date for a long time or what happened? No, we dated three months and he proposed. I guess he knows he knew he wanted you from the window. And then after he met you, <laughs> right. he, he knew it quickly too, right? He did. So... And so that was quick. We had a year engagement. How did you know? I'm, obviously, he was interested in you from the beginning. When did you know that this might be a guy that you might be interested in marrying? He was just a good, like, salt of the earth person, right. you know. Um, and I really adored his family when I met them in Mariana. So you were, and we went to a movie on our first date alone. And I remember after the movie. Do you remember what you saw? I think it was Breakfast Club. It's a solid choice. Yeah. I think yeah. it was Breakfast Club. Uh, we uh, had a little kiss afterward and then stopped kissing when the credits were finished. <laughs> so, and I was like, I really like this guy. I guess so. So, usually movie credits are a decent length of time. Pretty so. long. Yeah. And then you got married in 1986, right? Yes. So that was. What about you dated for about a year or so? Yeah, we had an engagement for a for year. Engagement, right? Mm-hmm. So you graduated from FSU with a degree in marketing, right? From uh, yes. the College of Business. Yes. And, um, but you were also planning on being a surgeon and studying for your MCAT at the same time. So not then. Okay. Actually, that was, that was, um, we had Mitchell, our firstborn. Right. Mike was with, um, Chrysler Credit Corporation, and he was transferred to Atlanta and then Savannah. And in Savannah, he had a horrific car crash. Hmm. 
uh, a semi was parked in the outer lane. Um, and it was a flatbed with no, it was hauling nothing. And he was not even in the vehicle. The driver hmm. had stopped to, I guess, try to find out where the docks, loading docks were in Savannah. And um, it was in rush hour traffic and came around a curb and didn't even see it. So must have seen it the last second, you know, if somebody's in front of you and jerks out of the way and you have no response time. Sure. Um, but jerked the wheel to the left um, and the whole engine just came through the passenger seat. So it was quite terrible. He spent a month in the hospital. Mm, he had dislocated his hip and broke out the, you know, socket and broke his humerus, you know, the big bone in the arm and right. broke his jaw and 40 wow. stitches in his tongue and <laughs> things like pretty, that. Just, pretty serious. They said yeah. he would have died had he not had such a big chest frame frame yeah. yeah he would have and he had collapsed lung and a lot of problems so he got out of the car in the middle of this traffic and thankfully it wasn't far from the hospital and a nurse off duty was behind him or down the road put on her flashers got out because he got out and then of course fell to the ground right um and we saw the ambulance come in front of us mitchell and i because i was he mike was going to take him to child care and I said, no, go ahead. You do it. I'll, I'll have time to take him. And so we waited for the ambulance to go by. And then all the traffic was backed up. And, of course, I didn't know it was my husband. Right. And so I was like, Mitchell, we need to go through this neighborhood the back way. So let's do that. There's a terrible crash. And as soon as I got to Trust Company Bank at the time, and I was a marketing director for them, I'm doing right what I want, you know, marketing, yeah, marketing sales. It was actual marketing. Yeah. And um, I had all these messages, and so my secretary, uh, my admin said, and here's one from the hospital, probably wanting some, you know, sponsorship or us to be involved in something as a bank, and something just made me, you know, say, I'm sure, you know, God's blessings to say, call, and I did, and he'd been in an accident. Went down there, and he was three months in recovery um, after so that episode led to you to be interested in, in medicine? medicine? It did. Not particularly therapy because they didn't even prescribe therapy. It was crazy. You know, they brought him home to our apartment on a stretcher. But I got interested in medicine. So we moved back home after that to Tallahassee. And I said, I th I'd like to go back to school um, to be a doctor. I think that was my calling. And so I took all of the prerequisites, which, like I said, were many because my biology they laughed right. at. <laughs> Didn't have the necessary I science had, classes. I had nothing, yes. And so I had to start from scratch. Which normal people study marketing try to avoid right. science as much as possible. <laughs> right. So that makes That's sense. exactly right. Um, and so I uh, took all the prerequisites. I had uh, applied to the PIMS program mm -hmm. that they used to have before we had a medical school at Florida State took the MCAT, and was in biochemistry and histology. And our second son was born. And that was the end of that. <laughs> right. I was in school, and I had to withdraw, and it was not going to happen. Nick was very involved medically. You were in school, had your son Nick, and um, 
he was born with some pretty significant special needs. Yes. Um, so tell me a little bit about that and the obvious impact that had on you and your family. Um, the physicians were completely had just were trying everything and testing for everything that they possibly could. He, um, the first month, he was too good. Couldn't wake him to feed him. Had a very hard time. I mean, he would have just slept on and that would have been the end of him. And so it took a lot of valiant effort to um, pull him through that first month. And then by month two, he wouldn't stop screaming. So, and projectile vomiting and all kinds of issues. You'd feed him and take forever to feed, and then he'd throw up half or more than half of everything you gave him. So we were feeding him like every other hour. And you had and no night. idea what was going on at this no. point? No, we didn't. Um, we had multiple hospitalizations at TMH. Um, great neurology there with Dr. Ayala. Um, they, he, they referred us down to Shands. Um, teaching hospital, you know, some people love it. Uh, we did not. Um, they argued over, you know, whose care he was going to be under, whether it was going to be neurology or gastroenterology. And they discharged us to the Ronald McDonald house, you know, over the weekend and no one in the facility could sleep. Um, so Mike called him and with him screaming and said, we cannot be in this facility. I mean, no, Right. Is, I didn't know they did that. I know the families stay there. I didn't know that the patients would stay there sometimes too. Yeah, because I guess insurance, they you know, mm -hmm. won't pay over the weekend if there's no testing going on, something right. like that. And so when we brought him in, uh, they had a big table of all neurology and gastro all there at the table, and Nick proceeded to projectile vomit all over everything they had on the table. Um, and so they saw it. It was amazing. And how old is he at this point? He is four months at this time. And then they were like, oh, okay, we're admitting him again. Um, but basically they sent us home with on Valium. I said, is that for me or for him? I mean, somebody's got to be, somebody's got to have something around here. Because <laughs> right. my skin was peeling like a snake. Uh, my face was from this stress. Yeah, I mean. And Mike was traveling. He was out of town three nights a week. And I had, you know, a toddler, Mitchell, and then I had a, this baby. And it was just rough. I mean, he had seizure disorders. He'd stop breathing, turn blue. Um, he couldn't tolerate even the, you know, the heat turning on with the wind across the master bedroom. Mm -hmm. I had to cover him like a little bird. He was just so sensitive to any kind of sensory stimulus. Um, so how did you deal with that? You're just trying to survive for a little bit, and you're like, okay, they've sent us to what is you know, known as one of the best hospital for pediatrics in the area, and they don't know. And so they sent us home, and uh, then uh, our pediatrician referred us to um, Eggleston in Atlanta. So we went there. While they didn't know what was going on, they sent us to a specialist who might at NYU, um, so we boarded the plane with Nick and flew to NYU, and everything was cash. It was very interesting. He had a lot of different uh, uh, meds. There wasn't any support in the state of Florida at that time. 
In fact, Nick was one of the first clients to go on uh, the Medicaid waiver at the time. It was just introduced in Florida, and we had a really jam-up case manager. So were the meds helping? Um, Could you tell if they were making a difference or – they no, they really didn't. He was on Reglan and other things to keep him from projectile vomiting, but not really. I mean, we ended up. I had to cook his like cream of rice in like Nutramagen and put it in a feeder bottle and cut the nipple off at the top and just basically for you know feed it right. to him like that to be heavy enough to stay down. Um, so he was failure to thrive. You know, uh, even as valiantly as we were working. And so when we took him to NYU, um, her name was Dr. Axelrod. I will never forget her. We had a two-hour appointment, and he, she documented he had effortless emesis, which just means just throwing up, just, just run right out. I mean, like nothing. Right. And she wanted every doctor's name that had been associated with his care. And she wrote blistering letters to the physicians. Um, this child has needed a fundoplication, which is a physical sphincter. They build a sphincter because it's a physiological sphincter otherwise. Right. To it, control the flow up it, and down. It right? gauges when the stomach is full and it closes down. And so they did that, a fundoplication. They inserted a G-tube so he could eat. Um and not vomit everything up, and finally he started growing. Um, but so this that was, made a big difference. Oh yes, but the it, the first year was just horrendous to go through the first year of life. You know, yeah, struggling, thinking your baby's going to die, and nobody knows what's wrong with them, and and kind of feeling like the doctors had given up on you, right? Just well, kind they, of sent you back home. Well, they said I was a neurotic mother. <laughs> they put it on you. Oh yeah. You're, you're just it's, it's neuro, your neuroses of this because, in fact, they didn't take me seriously until my husband, Mike, had him and took him in. I was busy doing something. I said, I really – we were having a party, for goodness sakes, a Christmas party. I don't know how I was planning all that. But I said, really, just take him in because he's just not, not doing well at all. Right. And so Mike did, and he sat in the waiting room, and Nick would projectile vomit. He would catch it and clean it up, and they came rushing out there and said, he has a bowel obstruction. Get him to the hospital immediately. And he's like, this is exactly what my wife's been telling you all. I said, well, I, how neurotic can I be? I have a very well-adjusted three-year-old. Right. <laughs> you know, I think I know what so I'm doing. So they just thought you were a mom who was not dealing with a fussy baby well. Exactly. Exactly. And when they saw that in their waiting room— so was there an official diagnosis of what Nick had, or was it just a combination of a lot of neurological issues? Well, what they called it initially was like a CP-like syndrome. And as it, as we got further into it and still kept up with Dr. Ayala, he said, I believe he had Rett syndrome. He has Rett syndrome. They had found the genetic marker just as Nick passed at mm-hmm. 16. So we don't know. Um, but he had all the telltale signs. So it used to be under the autistic umbrella, under autism, and then they found the genetic marker specifically for rats. Doctors initially didn't think Nick would made it, make it out of infancy. No. And he lived to be 16 years old. He did. So 
He Kelly. did. So that is certainly something to celebrate. It right? is. And we um, we got a little beach cottage because it's hard to travel, you know, with a child that has like a whole van mm-hmm. full of things. And so we outfitted our little place there with suction machines and, you know, his tube feeding gear and, you know, diapers and all that different right. stuff and a, and a bath chair and a big beach stroller and all of that. And, man, it really saved us because we we still had to do all the work, but we were in a lovely place. Right. And we could go down to the beach, and he loved it. So what used to shut him down, he was now, after very good therapies in PTOT speech, um, we did patterning for a year, the Dolman Delicato method. Um, and that's the one thing I loved about Shans was their therapy. And that's actually how I got interested in doing therapy with med school off the table, and they were giving us very practical advice. They said, we know you don't have a diagnosis. We don't care. Hmm. We're going to treat what we see, and this is how you can help your child right now. Right. So everything from feeding to bathing to positioning to stretching to just they were wonderful. Right. And Mike actually, when they were in there, reached over and tapped my knee. He's like, you'd be good at this. Yeah. And so I got back. You know, when I returned, I – Inquired with FAMU and applied, and I had two classes to take to finish that up and got in. Hey, everybody. Just a quick reminder that this episode is brought to you by Fiori Communications. Just like people, every business has a story to tell, and we've been helping our clients tell their story since 2001, because who you are as a company is just as important as what you do. To learn more about how telling your story can make a difference in your business, visit FioriCommunications.com. Thanks again for listening. Now back to the show. All right, so you mentioned Mitchell and you and you mentioned Jillian. Mm-hmm. So you're you know your other son and daughter. So tell me a little bit about about them. Uh, I get very emotional <laughs> with this because. I mean, really not ever a harsh word to their brother. I mean, I have so many pictures. You can just see the pride, you know, on Mitchell's face for his brother. Yeah. And one particular story, we had a great PT, and a new piece of equipment came in. It was a stander. So he could stand, and that's just good for digestion and bone growth and all kinds of, you know, being upright and alert. and Sure. Uh, prevent contractures and things like that. And so the stander came in, and so she came to the house. Debbie Foster, she was just wonderful. She came to the house. It took us an hour to assemble this thing and get him all supported and padded in. And and literally, you could hardly see his little body in there because there was so, you know, he had to have so much uh, additional pieces right. to, to help him stand. And Mitchell came in from playing with his buddies, and he came in the door, and he said, Nick, you're standing. <laughs> and he just ran over to the stander and just hugged the whole stander. And Nick, because you couldn't actually get to Nick, right. but it was the cutest thing. I mean, just, you know, kids are just precious in that. Um, and Jillian, if ever there were, like, uh, she was at a party one time. They were both invited, and he, it was, uh, they were in camo, and um, they had dog tags and everything. It was really a fun event. She was kind of intimidated because she didn't know 
a lot of the kids that were playing. So she'd crawl up in Nick's lap in his wheelchair until she felt comfortable enough. And then she got balloons, and then she got another – she goes, can I have another balloon for my brother? And she tied it to his chair or asked me to. This is adorable. She never wanted him to be left out. Yeah. You know. It's pretty cool how she showed loved him and also sought him for comfort too, mm-hmm. you know. Right. This is my big that brother. Kind of relationship. Yeah. I'm going to hang out with him. And then, of course, as she got older, she'd talk for him. Of course, Nick wants this um, or he doesn't like that or right. you know, she had she had all of that down. Um, just cool kids with him. Yeah. I'm sure that made you a very proud mom to mm-hmm. see that. Yes, and I didn't – when he passed at 16, Mitchell had gone on a track scholarship to Troy as a hurdler. And we didn't know the right thing to do, but we sent him back to school. He, in his – you know, in Mitchell's fashion, tried to just keep everything going. We had him in therapy on campus and he didn't miss a class he didn't miss practice um but he wasn't fully available right so he ended up not doing well and i we felt terrible you know for having made that decision but we weren't sure what was the right decision so anyway he came back home the next semester and um took a little break from school and now he's one semester away from his bachelor's in social work. Oh, nice. And then he'll go right into his master's in social work. And he works for um, our company, Play Big. That's great. Mm-hmm. That's kind of what we're talking about here is things we don't know necessarily at the time why things are happening or, you know, things that happen that are unexpected but mm-hmm. had a good result. Right. Absolutely. And, you know, that's why – I. I tell folks, if it's not going the way you thought, just, you know, play it out. You know, play the cards you're dealt, and there's a plan, you know, from you know, divine God that's got you in mind. Right. And we can't even think possibly how that's going to end, like you said, how right. what's, what good's going to come of it and the strengths that it had brought to our family and right. our children. Um, Jillian's now also interested in social work because she's really interested in the mental health aspect. Um, she coaches um, equestrian athletes and some of them on the spectrum. Hmm. And she does really well with them. And I said, you know, that's an area of medicine that's, I mean, horse therapy or um, therapeutic horseback riding, just right. grooming the horse. And then, of course, competing at higher levels for those that can. Um, and there's something about a horse that's very calming um, and, you know, organizing yeah. and settling. Yeah. So she's looking at how to take that love and then also blend it with therapeutic benefit. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. And there's a, you know, there's a compassion, I think, built in and a, and a lovingness from coming through an experience like Mitchell and Julian had with mm-hmm. Nick that – I mean, you can't replace that with school or studying or, no. or good intentions, right? I mean, right. you live through something that qualifies you or, you know, encourages you to pursue something that that you're uniquely mm-hmm. kind of ready to do. 
Absolutely. Jillian asked me when she was young, because at first, I, when I went out on my own, one of my friends went on maternity leave and gifted me her caseload, which is a really nice way to start in peds. Um, but she had gone to their homes. And so I was doing that also. And then I was working for um, Children's Medical Services, doing home for that zero to three population. And so I did that. And then, um, you know, when you have a couple personal care attendants that don't show up when the bus driver is there to drop Nick off Mm -hmm. and they call me and I'm like, I'm right in the middle of a session. After that happens a couple times, then you say, okay, I'm going to be home every day at this time to get him ready. And so I started having clients come to me. And so that proved to be hugely popular. I hung swings in the big oak trees in our yard and had a swing set, big swing set, a trampoline, um, a pool. I did aquatic therapy when the weather was good, and then had the whole uh, took over the whole garage, which was not Mike's favorite. I was say, <laughs> what did Mike think about that? <laughs> With equipment and yeah. swings, suspension, and everything in there. So if it was rainy, and there were two of my clients that we would sit in there and talk about play big, and what we wanted that to look like, and so they were really helpful. And, you know, coming up with some ideas, too, about how they wanted. And one of them I still see. We yeah. still see it play big. Yeah. Don't tell anybody she's in her 20s. <laughs> <laughs> I do want to kind of reset things a little bit. So you went back and after you knew that you were focused on therapy and because you saw the need for that and developed that passion, right, to yes. pursue that. Yes. You've, you finished your classes you needed at FAMU to get another yes. bachelor's degree. Right yes. in physical therapy. Correct. That was that was the level of the program at that time. Right. Okay. Mm-hmm. So then you start practicing pediatric physical therapy. TMH had paid for my schooling, which was amazing because it's a demand occupation. Okay. And so my, um, you know, I was to stay there two years or three years. I can't remember, but I really liked it. So I. So you were in the TMH five. family of physical therapy. Um, Acute care, like in the hospital, in the NICU, in the PICU, and the pediatric floor. And, you know, there's only certain PTs that like PEDS. And so when they'd come up, they're like, oh, no, (laughs) I'm not doing PEDS. And so I ended up getting a lot of the PEDS, pediatric patients. And then I did outpatient for them, pediatrics. You're, you're practicing, you described kind of the process of how you started bringing it home so you could be home when Nick got off the bus. Yes. You start setting up a lot of what sounds like what Play Big is now. I mean, yes. some of those elements, right? So tell me how therapy and play therapy and the whole concept of Play Big kind of where the nugget of that came from and how that developed in the early stages. Okay. TMH. Um, gave me a huge opportunity and paid for very, very expensive training. And the reason, I don't know if you remember this, but back in the day, Health Plan Southeast, when they were one of the HMOs, HMOs, they stopped paying for OT, for occupational therapy. And occupational therapists have been carrying the water for kids with autism and neurological issues and mental health issues because they come out of the mental health area. For many, many years, they couldn't see OTs. And Health Plan Southeast, there were a lot of those clients. And so TMH said, let's cross-train you. And they sent me to all of the courses. It was over a year long 
to get my SIPT certification, which is a sensory integration and praxis testing, um, and all the concepts and the, the um, method behind what they do and how they do it and how the, the brain circuitry changes right. through sensory motor input. And so I was able to see those clients that needed that kind of work. So that's what TMH trained me for. And so I was able to use that. And then also through Nick's patterning and seeing kind of the intensity and the duration, the frequency of treatment that's needed um, to make a big difference and the kind of work that's needed. So I had that coming into my private practice. Um, and my child has been the hardest I've ever treated, you know, right. <laughs> to this day. And I'm 25 years out, you know, yeah. now as a PT. Um, but yeah, those were the beginnings of thinking about and also understanding the importance of a multi-specialty approach. Started out with um, myself, a PT and an OT, recruited speech, and then joined with mental health um, with Rachel Charlep. And she was just f- fabulous. She would come to a developmental preschool where I was working at the time and I noticed when I was doing um, some of the the crashing and deep pressure proprioceptive work um, that some children responded fabulously. They loved it. They craved it. These are the kids that run into everybody, don't know where their bodies end okay. and someone else begins, right? These are those kids. and But some of them had a very unusual response. And it to me, it looked like fear. And I, and I would know their history, of course, and it was trauma is what yeah. it was. And so I felt like these children really needed somebody that could work through their trauma and, of course, help me understand how to alter, you know, my presentation right. and how I could do that better. She just answered the call. I just – I had met her through another – uh, mental health practitioner in LCSW. She's a licensed clinical social worker. And man, she was fantastic. So after they would have their therapies in the morning, she'd come in late in the day before pickup and work with them through their traumas hmm. um, through play therapy. And play therapy is unique to mental health. Tell me what play therapy is. Play therapy is um, the most fascinating thing that I've ever seen. When done well, um, you have a playroom that is specifically set up. Nothing is random. Everything is there for a reason, and it's in a specific spot. Um, There are some dramatic play, but joining developmental services and the mental health, behavioral health, is pretty rare in pediatrics. You know, you have to go from place to place to place to place to, and it's so hard because the parents are so busy. And they're so overwhelmed already and exhausted, and they have other children. And, it's, right. and sometimes every trip's a big deal, right? Every time you oh, pack them up and drop them off. And, absolutely. It, it's a transition. Right. And our kids really have a hard time with transitions. This way, they can have back-to-back-to-back sessions, um, and we have a synergistic effect. You know, it's not just the, the three sessions, but it's far more powerful. You can also lean into the discomfort in therapy, meaning you can press them hard enough to have time to recover and come out on the other side of that. Right. And that's what's really important for these 
back to back to back sessions. Because they're there long enough they're there long for that enough, all to happen. Right, exactly, for right. that to happen. And so we can change neurology. And so then it's not that they have to – yes, in the meantime, they're learning practical ways to think, practical ways of doing something, learning what is appropriate and what is not, of course, just like any child – but you can't possibly learn all of the things that would need for you to interact socially. Yeah. I mean, it's impossible. Um, so we grow the brain circuitry that even allows them to be aware with our lower functioning kids, to even be aware that there's a person beside you in the room. Hmm. And it's not just to use them as a tool um, or to access them like something right. else that's inanimate, like a swing. So the difference is... You don't give them a list of situational checkboxes. If someone does this, you do this. No. It, it's, it's very robotic, and yeah. then that's odd. Yeah. Right? I mean, who who could do that? That wouldn't function well for anybody if you had to go through that thought process every time you're faced with a, a reaction kind of situation. Right? right. It's impossible to do. Um, so you're helping the brain work like it. We're, for, we're forcing. Forcing it to. We're forcing it. So you, you give that sensory motor input, and you you can access the brain through the senses, through emotions, um, and through movement. That's it. That's how you get in. Hmm. So, you know, that's why Play Big is moving, engaging, connecting. Right. Now, I know that you had probably had some idea that this need was there as you're putting together a, a business model and figuring out all the business side of creating Play Big. But are you surprised at the at the reaction and the, and the need for it in the community and how many families are seeking this kind of care and help? Yes. Answer to both of those is we did a lot of research. And, of course, a lot of that was done with Nicholas because me trying to find providers, right, and trying right. to. Um, so I knew that that was a problem. Um, and then I know, like when I worked at TMH, there's a three- to six-month waiting list for children, and when you're only two years old, uh, six months That's is a, a whole lot of your life already, right? right. Yeah. And that zero to three, the brain never grows like that again, never. When we opened our doors, it was like a faucet was turned on. And, you know, I was working 12-hour days from eight to eight and then doing all the paperwork and the business part of it after that. Um, so was Rachel. Uh, so was a lot of our team. So we were shocked. And... We continued to take clients because we didn't know where we all were saying, okay, well, this is going to shut off. You know, this is this has got to shut off soon because we can't keep up this pace of us working 12 hour. I mean, I literally would see 12 children a day. Right. Um, and another PT, it was so cute. I would actually get lunch and eat half of it and leave it up on the bar. And then she would, during like a, a quick, you know, five minutes, and then she would eat the rest of my lunch. <laughs> and she was working 12-hour days, yeah. you know. And we're like, this cannot continue, but it did. And so we had to hire more people. And that's the biggest issue, really. It's not the children. We have wait lists all over the place. It's getting the talent. It's um, especially hard in Mariana to recruit the talent. Um, and physical therapy, only 10% go into PEDS. Pediatrics wasn't a popular option when you were going through it, and it sounds like it's still tough to find people in that area. Well, you know, it takes a certain kind of person 
that wants to do that. It's a subspecialty. Um, and there's so many offerings. So you started Play Big with an idea. Yes. And a concept and offering. People flooded in from the beginning, so you knew you had something. Mm-hmm. Tell mm-hmm. me about where Play Big is today. And Mike actually named the company. Oh, he did? Yes. That was his idea? Play Big. And I said, I love it. That's fantastic. Um, because so many therapies, they work sub-threshold. You know, it's like an action potential. If you don't give it at least enough stimulation, you get nothing. To be play big was right. the idea of that, and play yeah. is so important. Um, and then we, as being athletes, you know, at Florida State, loved the particular leadership that is offered by a coach mm. in your life. It's not a teacher. It's not a parent. It's not, you know, it's, it's like nothing else to have a coach, someone that can press you and then you still love them. Right. They know how to coach you and they get the best performance out of you. Just kind of give me an overview of Tallahassee, Mariana, the different companies. Just kind of an overview of what Play Big is kind of structurally right now. Well, we have um, under the Play Big umbrella is what we call it now. We have five different LLCs and therapy is one. Um, Play Big Therapy and Recreation Zone. And that was the first, that was that was the brainchild. That was the baby. Right. And then we opened recreation zones in both Tallahassee and Mariana. And that is an opportunity for us to uh, promote play for all children. Right. So we have Play Big Learning Center, um, Tallahassee and Mariana. And Mariana is a private school. It's growing really well. Um, so they take McKay scholarship and all the other kind of Gardner and the tax credit and all of those um, parental choice or um, education choice scholarships. And Florida is amazing for leading the way in that for the rest of the country. Um, and then Tallahassee is um, a tutoring center. So right. we have that. And we're looking at a third, uh, opening our third on South Monroe, actually. Uh, about half of the children that come to the north. Uh, are coming from the zip codes that are on the south side. So we know it's needed, and we know they're having there's, – there's people even further out, Crawfordville, you know, Wakala, out that way that have no services. So, is this crazy to you to think about having some swings in your garage and to, to where this is now? Yeah, it is. When I slow down enough to think about it, <laughs> yeah, it's really, it's really cool. I Meeting a need in, in – for our children and their families, and then meeting a need in the community of Tallahassee where I came to school. I loved it. I met my husband. We've had our home here all these years. Um, So this is my home and being able to offer this. And then also in Mariana, which is Mike's hometown, you know, that's where he was the high school football star and all of that. And this is really Really neat to be able to bring that. And people thought we were crazy to open in Mariana. You also were named to the Seminole 100 for the second consecutive year. Yeah. It's one of the fastest growing companies owned by an FSU alum. So congratulations. Yeah, That's exciting. Thank you. Thank you. We love that. And especially meaningful because I did graduate in business. Right. And that's the Jim Morin Institute for Entrepreneurship and through yeah. the College of Business. Um, so... Yeah, that was really cool. We finished 21st last year. Yep. 
And uh, we don't know what our ranking will be, but we'll find out <laughs> in February. Um, and you've also been recognized in that. We have. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. It's, it's pretty cool. It is very cool. Um, so this is my last question. Okay. The name of this podcast is How I Got Here. So we've talked about your path to getting to this point right now. Mm-hmm. Um, where do you think here might be for you three to five years from now? Wow. I do spend a lot of time thinking about this and trying to be strategic and um, definitely getting Southside, Play Big Southside on board, really building out the learning center as a private school here in Tallahassee to offer more education choice and therapy in-house. You know how wonderful to have all of that under one roof Um, and some after-school programming. Um, We haven't really done that largely. We've done that with a few children where we've like individually worked that out. Um, And maybe, maybe Dothan, maybe, you know, Panama City in the future will come back. We are really interested in the panhandle um, and the surrounding communities um, because they're very underserved. They call it a therapy desert. Even Tallahassee is a therapy desert. What about you as a person? Any thoughts about where you might be? I would like to be writing, putting all of this down. The majority of the time I talk with anybody about Play Big and what we've done and and my, my life, you know, my progression and the hurdles. Um, they're like, have you written this down? Have you, are you writing a book? That was Kelly Hutto. Instead of allowing the pain and frustration of her experiences to defeat her, she decided to change the system and provide a different future for many children and their families. And given her track record, I bet that book will be here before we know it. Thanks for listening to the show. You can subscribe at Apple Podcast, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, please leave us a review. It really does make a difference. Thanks to my amazing staff at Fiori Communications who pick up the slack while I'm working on these podcasts, and to Troy Bloom for composing our theme music. You can hear more of Troy's creations on Facebook and Instagram at Troy Bloom Music. To connect with the podcast or suggest a future guest, follow us on social media or email us at podcast at fioricommunications.com.